As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Today, I talked with Raghav Ball, who is the founder of Quintype. Now, Quintype recently partnered with Bloomberg to develop some digital video properties. And and this is a huge partnership, but not the first for Raghav. Raghav built an empire in India. He's known as the Rupert Murdoch of India, in fact, for his partnership specifically with Viacom, which allowed Viacom to break into the Indian market. So we talked to him about his entrepreneurial journey, about how he's leveraged partnerships successfully throughout his career, and what he's building now with Quintype. Welcome to Rocketship.fm, a podcast where we explore startups from funding to growth, from culture to sales, and everything in between. I'm Michael Saka. And I'm Joelle Goldman. If we could start at the beginning, I'd love to hear, you know, how you got into media and and how that became kind of your, your calling in the 90s. Yeah, so, you know, I had a pretty regular uh, start, as a lot of middle-class Indian boys do. Uh, my father was in the civil services, you know, so we never had too much money as a family, but we were fine, you know, uh, got good education, lived in some of the best uh, uh, cities and towns, so it was a decent upper middle class upbringing, I would say. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I didn't want to follow my father into the civil services. Uh, I just wanted to be in the corporate sector or be more in the sort of private enterprise space. So I joined, I I finished my college, I finished my MBA uh, from Delhi University uh, and I then uh, joined the corporate sector. I joined a consultancy, uh, then joined American Express Bank very briefly. So so about for the first four years of my life, I spent in the corporate sector. But you know, all through my college days, um, uh, I was always interested in uh, doing a sort of public speaking or telecasting on the side. 
as a hobby. And you could only do it as a hobby because India did not uh, recognize private television in those days, in the 80s. We only had one state-controlled broadcaster. So there was one channel, it was controlled by the state, and therefore there was no question of doing anything private. But you could be associated with it as as a uh, you know freelancer, uh, someone as a hobby. So we used to get a tiny stipend, you know, something like $15 to do a show. I'm talking about the mid-80s. Uh, but it was fun. It was fun. As, you know, you, you were in college and it was extra pocket money and it was fun and you got recognized. You know, the girls liked you. So, <laughs> What kind of shows were these? Were, were they interview shows or entertainment shows? They were, they were largely interview and discussion based, okay. uh, focused at, at the young people. So it was a youth audience. Uh, and largely, you know, yeah, you know, issues concerning the youth. Um, you know, so, so this was mid '80s, very different India from what what India is today. Uh, so, yeah, so I was always doing that as a hobby. But you know, what happened towards the end of uh, the '80s and early '90s uh, was a, a one of the Indian uh, private Indian media companies. They started uh, something. You know, they started a magazine on a on a video cassette. Uh, uh, this was sort of a proxy private television in India. It was proxy because we were not allowed to broadcast. So what they would do is, just as you would print a magazine on paper, they would actually publish video stories in a video cassette and distribute it like a magazine. Oh wow! Yeah, you know, and that was a typically Indian innovation because the state controlled uh, uh, broadcasting. But suddenly, this thing became very popular because it was a proxy for private news. Uh, and uh, the cassettes became very popular and I used to sort of anchor it and front it. So that gave me a little bit of boost of popularity myself. And um, that coincided towards the end of 80s, early 90s with satellite television. Satellite TV came to India when CNN started broadcasting visuals from the Gulf War of 91. So there was no regulation, so, and there's no way you can stop a satellite signal from falling into your country unless you jam it. So no one knew about jammers, nothing. So the satellite signals started coming in, and people with large dish antennas started catching them. And, that, and the whole thing spread like wildfire because people said, you know, there's something called the satellite TV, and you can put a big dish antenna, and then you can see the pictures live. So in about two years, between 91 and 93, satellite TV grew unregulated and grew like wildfire totally yeah uh, and then it occurred to me that i can convert my hobby uh, into business uh, because you know i was a student of business and i was in the corporate sector so i understood business issues but i also had broadcasting as a hobby which got better refined when i was doing this private video cassette so i think you know putting two and two together i said well you know india is such a large democracy uh, it, you know, it mimics the U.S. in several ways. It's a very large, freedom-based, uh, retail-led society. That no way would Indians be happy consuming just overseas content. Indians would want their own content uh, because we had a, you know, it, it's a strange country. We had a legacy of of the free press. So our, our our English language and our vernacular language press was free for 150 years, but broadcasting was state-controlled. Hmm. But suddenly you saw that broadcasting could bypass the state through satellite TV. So as I said, one thing led to another. I said, well, this is a good enough opportunity. Let's jump at it. So I, you know, set up a television program production outfit, 
Uh, we produced a couple of pilots, one as a business news magazine, weekly business news magazine, another a sort of weekly lifestyles, feature-based sort of programming. Uh, these two luckily were picked up by two overseas channels. One was BBC World, the other was uh, 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 you know Star TV, which was then owned by Rupert Murdoch, uh, Hong Kong. So they both of them liked the show, so we got commissioned for both shows together. So that was a great stroke of luck. So we just set up the company and we got these two pilots out. Satellite TV was, you know, really growing. These, both these guys liked our shows. They commissioned both the shows. A uh, little production company, you know, fledgling little production company that I'd set up with sort of $2,000 uh, really took off. Wow. Uh, so 2000 is what you started with? To- yes, 50,000 rupees. And I think at that time the uh, exchange rate was about 25 rupees to the dollar. Okay. So yeah, $2,000, yeah. Wow. Wow, and and that got the the equipment and and production and yeah. So then once we once we got commissioned with these two shows, we went and picked up some capital from friends and associates, and then we went and picked up some capital from private equity companies. There was round one private equity, round two private equity. I, I really call it you know as with several things in life, uh, there there is a fortuitous confluence of circumstance. Uh, you know. Uh, I, I was willing to be an entrepreneur, so I left my job. I, what I was doing as a hobby could become my vocation. Uh, India opened up and liberalized to things like private equity and venture capital, which was which were unheard of in India in the 80s. Satellite television happened, <laughs> you know, all these things happened together. And uh, one thing led to another. So we grew. We do. We did more shows. Two shows became ten shows. Became fifteen shows. Uh, more private equity came in. And then finally, we became partners with CNBC, who wanted to launch a, a 24-hour uh, Indian business channel. Uh, we became their partners. Uh, under Indian law, we had to hold majority. So we became the dominant partner. Uh, we did an IPO. You know, and from then on, you know, how, you know, how it is. Once things take off, they take off. But then one step to another, CNBC led to a partnership with CNN for general news. That led to a partnership with Viacom for and MTV for entertainment programming, with Forbes for a business news magazine. So net net, we were a at in the year 2000, we were about a two million dollar revenue company. And by about 2014, when I finally exited, uh, our revenues had our group revenues were close to a billion dollars. So I think you know we, we sort of grew from there. Incredible, that. yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and it sounds like you were kind of the gateway for a lot of these um, media companies into India. They, like, yeah. they, they came to you because you understood the market. You had um, kind of a competitive advantage there. And so they, they came to you for that reason. Yes. So we, we could boast amongst all Indian media companies. We boasted of about six joint venture relationships with these very large uh, uh, American corporations. Everybody else uh, who got into bed with these um, uh, Indian partners, many of them fell by the wayside and JVs didn't work out. But as all of them worked, I mean, you know, at one time we had CNBC, CNN, so that's GE during those days, CNN, Time Warner, Viacom, uh, Forbes, uh, and A&E Networks, which is a history TV, AT, uh, history channel. Okay. Uh, so they were, they were we, we had a joint venture with them as well. So at one time we had these five, uh, six JVs with large American corporations. Uh, but we managed to run all of them very successfully because, you know, we, we completely believed in playing level and fair. And that's one big lesson that I had during those old innings that uh, uh, American companies make for good partners provided 
both sides are willing to be fair and transparent and you know not try and do uh, uh, stuff on the side which is not good for partnerships so did, were there um i guess like what what made them so successful was it was it the contract or was it the people uh that made those partnerships really work clearly people clearly the people yeah clearly people. i mean contracts are pretty standard templated stuff okay yeah uh, but it's the people it's the you know the synergy that the partnership brought in um, the you know with CNN IBN we had a global brand we had global co- content coming in from CNN we had a very nice bunch of uh, Indian journalists who were creating great Indian content so there was great synergy uh, so big news broke across the world we had access to all of CNN's uh, uh, facilities and CNN's uh, uh, programming cloud and news cloud and if something big happened in India we had our own infrastructure so and likewise with CNBC so um you know i i think it was a, it was a wonderful synergy of people uh, and a very constructive partnership both the partners brought to the table uh, you know their combined uh, energy mm-hmm. and um i just like to understand was cnbc a name in india at the time like did that hold weight with the people no no but- so it was actually you giving kind of cnbc the clout, if you will, among the people in India. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I think it'd be fair to say that because CNBC started in the U.S. only in the early nineties, so it was a it was sort of barely known uh, globally. Uh, uh, so we brought it to India, but you know, again, a lot of these things are fortuitous because the Indian stock markets were just taking off. India had just sort of opened up its economy to the world from being a very closed. Um, socialist economy in the 80s it became a private sector oriented free market oriented open economy in the 90s so the stock markets were sort of on a real ride you know they were sort of you know really going 20-25% so uh, the stock markets were up and as I told you India is a very uh, in, 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 in societal structures India is very similar to the US because it's a very large population it's a very diverse population people speak a lot of languages here it's a very retail led population uh, so the stock markets took off, uh, and with that, CNBC came in as sort of you know it was an idea uh, whose time had come in India. Uh, so it really took off with, uh, with 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 us with CNBC TV 18 as a joint brand. Now I mean, you'd be interested to know that um, outside of the US, the only only other profitable franchise of CNBC in the world was the CNBC TV 18 in India. They are still in yes, they are still in investment. In Europe, they're making investments still. In Asia, they're making investments still. In Japan, they're making investments. In Middle East, they're making investments. In Africa, they're making investments. Yeah. Only here uh, that we are generating almost, uh, you know, 20, when I left, we were generating almost 25 to 30 million of cash. Wow. It, what is the big difference? Is it because our demographics are so similar? I think so. Yeah. I think so. It was, the demographics are very similar. It's a retail-led market. Unlike all the other markets that I just rattled off, except for Africa, which could also become a retail-led market. The others are all institutional markets. Yeah. Singapore is institutional. Uh, Europe is very institutional. Uh, so I think it's really the size of the market, the uh, structure of the market, uh, and and the time. I mean, you know, the Indian markets were just on a roll. Yeah. So, I mean, before we get to today, I do, I, I want to find out a little bit more about these partnerships and, and what, what you did to... Um, structure them successfully like you said it's the people but it's the communication too um was there there anything that you would tell you know an entrepreneur today setting up partnerships 
uh, that they they should look for or that like um, that they should kind of communicate with another company that they're looking to partner with? Yeah, so you know, this is a question I've I've sort of uh, asked myself, and people have asked as well. How is it that you ran uh, such successful joint ventures yeah. when nobody else was able to do that? My and my, you know, sort of, it's, it's a complex answer. But if I was to whittle it down to one line, I would say you've got to have the ability. And this is, I think, this this is, I think, the secret sauce of running successful partnerships, whether it's a marriage, whether it's a partnership with a friend, or whether it's a joint venture with a big corporation. You've got to have the ability to see it from the other guy's point of view. So whenever you address a, an issue, you've got to, you would obviously see it from your point of view. That's normal. That's natural. As human beings, we always do that. But if you have the ability to transcend to across the divide and look at it from the other guy's point of view, then my sense is that you will always be able to talk your way to a solution. Uh, and that, I think, is, is the secret sauce of good partnerships in life. Uh, can you see it from the other guy's point of view? If you can, then I think you have your ability to come to solutions. Because when there are two people in a room, there will be differences. Uh, there will be differences of strategy, there will be differences, there will be, you know, if, if something goes wrong, there will be sort of blame apportioning. All of that is part of human psychology and human behavior. But for, for, for you to be able to successfully transcend those problems and come to solution, which is what makes for longevity in partnerships, I think is the ability to see it from the other guy's point of view. And I think we, we were able to do that. We were absolutely able to do that. Uh, and there's trust, you know, I think. I think that, you know, and these things lead to trust. And once there is trust, uh, then the person who's sitting remote, uh, because, you know, there's a natural suspicion if you're not on the scene. There's a natural suspicion if you're remote, that things may not be happening the way uh, they're being portrayed. But once that trust builds up, then you get taken for your word. Then you get taken at face value when you say something. So my sense is trust, transparency, ability to see it from the other guy's point of view, uh, and ability to be flexible enough to accommodate a consensus solution. I think that's what makes for partnerships. I love it. Talk about today. So you, you've left media um, in the last couple of years. Sounds like 2014. So you're about you know year and a half out um, from media, and you've started Quintype. Tell us tell us a bit about how this came to be. What was the mo- motivation behind it? So you know, in 2014, when uh, my wife and I, my wife was co-founder with me, both of us exited uh, Network 18. So, you know, all of a sudden, uh, all the problems that a first generation entrepreneur has went away. You know, there was a capital in the bank. There was sufficient track record. Uh, you know, you had successfully exited one venture. So, you know, so we, we sort of asked each other, what, what should we do now? One option, of course, was to become what a lot of other uh, successful uh, first generation entre- entrepreneurs become. They become venture capitalists and they start, you know, uh, mentoring other people and investing in other people. We thought we were still a bit young. We thought we still had, you know, 15 years ahead of us, 15 to 20 years ahead of us, where we could do something all over again. So we said, let's start uh, another operating venture rather than just a venture capital uh, business. So we looked around and we said, media is what we understand. And we got more and more excited. Uh, so we took a trip across the US, New York, Silicon Valley, everywhere. We met people like Box Media and Mashable and you know, these, these new generate these new Mike.com, these uh, new age digital media companies. And we realized this is really where media is headed. But along with that came a very uh, important second realization, which is that in this digital mobile first media, it's not just about content. 
it is a successful marriage of content and technology. Unlike television or unlike magazine publishing, which where technology plays a minuscule role, there is hardly any technology. In it. But in the in the two way communication of the of the digital world and the mobile, particularly the mobile handheld world, technology is very important. How are you reaching your consumer? How quickly can you be downloaded? Uh, what kind of personalization algorithms are you doing? What is the kind of two way communication you are setting up with your audiences? How are you harvesting user generated content? How are you looking at analytics? How are you seeing the uh, how are you parsing your traffic to figure out what audiences are reacting to? All of this is tech-based stuff. So we realized that technology is something we need to put our arms around. We were journalists. We were not engineers. And therefore, didn't understand technology as well. So it was very clear to us that if we were to launch a media product, and we did launch it, it's called it's consumer-facing, it's called the Quint, we also need to put in equal amount of energy and capital into understanding and harnessing technology. Uh, and coincidentally, we met uh, Amit Rathor, who is the uh, co-founder of Quintype with us uh, in, in the Silicon Valley area. It was just, yeah, it was just a cold uh, meeting. I mean, we went to a meeting with another technology entrepreneur and there was Amit sitting there and uh, we got talking. He'd heard of us from Network 18, uh, some of the brands he had seen. Uh, so, uh, you know, so we got talking and, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, I asked him what he was doing and he, he had just exited his first uh, venture that he had set up in, in the valley. So he was looking to do something. We were looking to set up a tech shop where we could understand technology along with the uh, media product that we were doing. So it was a you know combination, a confluence of interests. So we sort of hit off, we liked each other. So you know we said, why don't we build a new age digital publishing platform, uh, a SaaS based platform, which will be open to any uh, publisher in the world who wants to wants to either migrate his old world digital uh, his old world publishing platforms onto a new age digital publishing platform or someone like the quint like ourselves who wanted to set up from scratch so i think that's how the idea of quint type came up uh, and uh, uh, we started building it uh, the quint was the first client on quint type uh, and a lot of experimentation happened on the quint and a lot of learning with uh, engineers learning journalism or what is required in journalism and journalists learning what tech what technology can do to their content i think there was a lot of learning in the first one and a half years 18 months uh, which is where we are at now uh, and i think now we've reached a stage where the product is acquiring a maturity it's getting new features it's getting new publishers it's got i think more than a dozen other publishers now uh, besides uh, so i would say we are still at the midpoint uh, I, I would say there is uh, another half of our journey uh, left where we will layer on much more new age features. But I think we've reached that threshold point where others are beginning to trust the digital publishing platform uh, and are coming on. Very cool. And it, it looks like is Quint uh, a, a partnership with Bloomberg? No. So the Quint is a standalone product. Okay. Uh, then uh, about six months back, we got approached by Bloomberg because Bloomberg had uh, uh, another partnership in India which was coming to an end after several years uh, and they were looking for a new partner in India. Uh, they had of course seen what we had managed to do with our CNBC partnership in my earlier venture. Uh, also some of our, some of my colleagues at CNBC were now part of Bloomberg. So, so we now knew each other, everyone knew each other. 
So I think Bloomberg reached out and said, uh, would we be interested in, uh, in, in a partnership with them to launch a television come digital platform? Uh, we liked it. We, you know, we, we'd done it before with CNBC. We had no non-compete. I had not signed any non-compete. Uh, so, um, we, the Quint was stabilizing. Quint type was stabilizing. You know, both had done about, uh, 14 months each. Um, so we thought that was a good venture to get into. So then came Bloomberg Quint, which is a, a joint venture between the Quint and Bloomberg. So the Quint is a separate product. Uh, Quintype is a separate uh, company uh, and product. Bloomberg Quint is a joint venture, which is going to be focused at the finance and business news space only. So it's a vertical. Uh, it'll publish off Quintype because they liked Bloomberg when they saw what we had done with Quintype. Uh, they, liked the, they, they liked the content management system. Uh, and they said, why don't we publish Bloomberg Quint on Quintype? We were only too happy uh, because we'd already uh, published the Quint on, uh, on Quintype. So Bloomberg Quint uh, is now going to become a, a very large uh, client for Quintype. Uh, we hope to go live very soon uh, with the website. Very cool. That's fantastic. I mean, just leveraging the partnerships. Um, again, it's, it's, uh, it's brilliant. Um, so for, for Quintype, is this for publishers? Uh, do you see companies who are, you know, more and more leveraging content as kind of a way to market themselves? Are, are they able to leverage the platform as well? Yes. Yes. Okay. It's not just for publishing. Publishing, because of its uh, nature of being an online product, always reactive, news, breaking all around you, is a, is a little bit more complex than a publisher who's not reacting to the environment and is doing things in a more planned manner. So in, in a sense, that guy, uh, that kind of a client is an easier sell for Quintype because Quintype is architectured for handling uh, more complex, uh, reactive daily news operations. But if someone is not in that environment uh, and is really, say, a corporate publisher or is a blogger, um, Quintype is, is, is very, very, very good for them. And so what is um, the difference between like a WordPress or Squarespace, another way to publish um, that content? So what, uh, you know, Quintype is going to do more than what some of these uh, other, others are doing because Quintype is, will do everything that they do, number one. But we'll also bundle in uh, advanced analytics. We'll also bundle in personalization engines. We'll be much more technology friendly for the for the mobile screen uh, than for desktops uh, because desktops are really sort of uh, you know plateauing off so yes quintype will be in the same space as uh, some of these older platforms which are now reconfiguring themselves for the new age a digital uh, a new age you know handheld first digital age uh, quintype is building up from scratch and will bring in as i said you know will instead of having plugins with third parties will actually be building a very seamless uh, platform and it's SaaS-based. So yes, in the same space, it's a competitor space, but by virtue of being a later startup and uh, by virtue of somebody who's not uh, sort of hobbled by legacy, is able to build uh, on you know new age platforms, whether it's languages, whether it's uh, coding, whether it's uh, uh, not having to use plugins, but building its own. Um, you know, features like, uh, as I said, analytics, personalization, search, all of these are being built uh, innately in Quintype. Very cool. Yeah, I think it's a really exciting space, not only for like the changing media, but like at Crew, um, where, where I work, we had a blog. 
uh, for the last four years, and it's now considered a publication. That's what we're we're changing even the the vernacular that we that we re- refer to it as into a a publication because we're trying to mimic closer to uh, what a traditional media company would produce uh, because it works. It works for for marketing. So that, I think it's a really exciting space. That's fantastic. And it's also uh, you know uh, in the east, uh, India and uh, uh, East Asia and Middle East. There is a huge market which is not so serviced uh, by some of the legacy mm, players, older sure. players. So, 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 so there's also a geographical advantage that Quintag will have. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Pleasure talking to you. Yes, absolutely. If you'd like to check out Quintype, go to quintype.com. And a huge thanks to Raghav for, for coming on here today. Stay tuned. On Sunday, we have an interview with George Santino, who is a 20-year vet of Microsoft. He started off testing software for them at 35 and then moved all the way up to a partner. So we have a fantastic story of how he grew inside of the organization and the lessons he learned from spending 20 years at Microsoft. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe. You're not going to want to miss it. Leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play, wherever you get your podcast. Please, it helps us reach more people. You can follow us on Twitter at RocketshipFM. You can follow me at Michael Saka and Joel at Joel Goldman. All right, we'll see you back here in just a couple days.